Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. Achtung, die Sonne hat seinen Hut aufgesetzt. Hip, 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 hurra! Which is, of course, German for the sun has got his hat on. Hip, 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 hooray! Spring is here, ladies and gentlemen. Are you feeling springy, Jim? Yeah, I am. I, I wasn't feeling very springy last night, I have to say, because we had one of those sort of, you know, we are unleashed, sit outside, long lunch, Sunday lunches. And, you know, I was a bit one over the eighth, I'm not going to lie. <laughs> I actually, I, I actually have been overwhelmed by the sort of a that we can go out go drinking it's sort of done my head in a bit yeah. like we went we went we went for a pub early pub dinner yesterday in the in the sunshine and i, I sort of didn't sort of don't know how to behave anymore no i know what you mean it's <laughs> I mean, very weird could isn't be it? argued could be argued i never did but uh, it's yeah. a strange thing um <laughs> but of course spring means one thing campaigning season yeah. has started yes and the cricket season yes. of course yeah and the cricket season once your peasant once your peasant army has planted its um uh its crops yep you can then uh, you can then take it off on a jaunt to foreign parts. Yeah. Fire up your defrosted tank, get the infantry up and out of their foxholes. Yep. It's time to make war, or at the very least, time to uh, make war waffle. Welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk, <laughs> the Second World War podcast with me, Al Murray, and the man we very much see as our tank commander, Aww. James Holland. I'm the loader. You're the you're the <laughs> commander, aren't you, Jim? That was the arrangement we came to last do, week. Do, do you think so? Well, oh yes, and yeah, I'll turret. Most definitely. Yeah, in our little turret trip. We, we, try, um, we tried to have new photos taken, didn't we? That was did, exciting on the top did. of a firefly. I haven't seen them yet, though, yes. so obviously weren't any good. They can't have been any good. Um, we had a lot of fun <laughs> last week, though. As some of you may know oh if you follow us on Twitter. Oh, my goodness me. I mean, what a the, week. the Mustang. It's funny watching the film back um, of the Mustang, because I was basically, you were like in the cockpit going, wow, we're airborne. <laughs> I was basically struck dumb by it. Yeah, you were. You went a bit mute, didn't you? Yeah, it was, was quite like, funny. You were just taking yeah. it all in. Well, I couldn't, but I couldn't. It's just you're you're thinking, ah, trying to take it all in, and also that thing of um, because you got out and said, oh, that went by in a flash. So you st- I was trying to like make it not go by in a flash. I was just laughing my head try. off the whole time. That was the thing. <laughs> I just couldn't stop laughing. I mean, it was just amazing. I mean, my my absolute favourite bit was that um, when he when I was going, God, look at that railway down there. You know, it yeah. must be really hard shooting that. It's like, oh, I don't know. I don't think it's that difficult at all. And, yeah. Go, should we give it a go? And then we're sort of looking for a train, and then suddenly, oh, there's a good train. So he kind of yeah, manoeuvred then, around behind I, it and just go down on it. it but I was fantastic. thinking about that. It's the different. The difference is, yeah, you're looking for a train, but you're also trying to avoid flak. 
Um, you've got an eye, your eyes peeled for any um, uh, enemy fighters. You know, you know what I mean. It's, yeah. it's, it's a, there's a little bit, a tiny bit more to it than tooling around over Milton Keynes looking for trains to buzz. <laughs> <laughs> but it was it was a wonderful experience. I mean, it, it yeah. you know, it doesn't give you the the same sensation of what it must have been like in winter. You know, over the Battle of the Bulge or something like that. No. Um, of course not. But but it gives you a sense of what the plane can do and and what it feels yeah. like to be sat in there what the sound is the smell all those sort of things what all the dials do which we sort of know but it's it's a it's a different kettle of fish when you're actually in it isn't it well and that and the, sense and the, of that sense of sort of space and time and yeah you know, maneuverability and, how, and just how smooth it all was and i don't think that's just because it's kind of you know beautifully um maintained all the time i, I suspect they're all like that but i the thing i the thing that i really took away from it was how disorienting when you the moment you start doing anything um you know, aerobatic in it, how disorienting that is and how, mm. you know, it, 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 and that was all very formal for the aerobatics we were doing. If you're doing like in a spontaneous moment in an air battle, like God knows you could, I can see why you'd come out the other end, not knowing where the hell you were yeah, like, and or lose the guy you're with yeah, or lose, lose the rest of your finger four or whatever. Like you can completely, completely see that. That makes total sense. Mm. Um, no, it was great. And then Richard came on the live, the live cast on Thursday night. Um, for those of you who don't know on Thursday night, James and I sit in our respective um, uh, uh, bunkers and transmit um, this kind of thing, but you can see us and you can ask us questions. And then there's the regular patrons on the sidebar of shame, as we call it, chipping in um, crew of about 750, 800 people join us on a Thursday. And Richard, who Italian flew strength. us. Yeah, exactly. Battalion strength now. Um, quite a sort of a battalion at strength. And um, R- Richard, who flew us on the Tuesday, joined us on the Thursday night to talk a bit more about what he does, restoring warbirds, what they like to fly. I mean, questions... It's it's very unusual. You can actually ask someone, "What's your favourite Second World War fighter plane to fly?" and they can give you a sensible answer. So um, yeah, that was fascinating, wasn't it? Experienced answer. Yeah. So, yeah, so he really said, so, so the most pleasurable plane is the Spitfire, the one he'd want to go to war in is the Thunderbolt, which I thought yeah. was fascinating. And the Yak, and the Yak three was um, because it was so light, was incredibly powerful. Yes. Um, easily the most powerful plane he'd flown, which is which is interesting because. Because it's so light, it was very powerful. Whereas they get heavier towards the end of the war, heavier and heavier and heavier and heavier. As they get bigger and bigger engines on them, and you end up with a Tempest Four, for instance. Um, anyway, but also good luck him because because by the time this goes out, he might have his son and heir. His wife was yeah, um, yeah, yeah, of course, yeah. Due yeah, tomorrow, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And then the, being and then Monday now. All, yeah, and also on Thursday we went to Bovington and uh, uh, t- to the Tank Museum, the m- magnificent Tank Museum. Um, what was interesting about there is um. Their online shop has been so successful in the pandemic that the stock has exploded and expanded all across the <laughs> museum atrium and out into the rest of the building. Um, because, And it's very interesting talking to them about it. They're saying their engagement with people who, who never would be able to get to the museum has increased enormously. They can also see what people are interested in much more than, you know, just to flow through a museum uh, exhibit and all that sort of stuff. And that their role of telling people stories, they've been able to expand on um, uh, really very successfully during the pandemic. So I mean, it's it, interesting, a museum like sort of adapting so they're and surviving using, in a crisis. So they're using their shop as sort of market research in a way. Yeah, kind of. But also, but also, you know, they've been putting tank, lots of tank talks up, um, uh, uh, which, which have really drawn people, you know, you can see which one people are watching the most. You know, yeah, are yeah. people interested in the Churchill or the Tiger or the Covenanter or the, you know, whatever. It's mm, their laid I out wonder, for I wonder, I wonder. I, yeah, I wonder too. <laughs> the Covenanter. I wonder how well attended that lecture was. <laughs> anyway, um, 
Uh, so we've we've had a lot. We had a lot of fun on the road. Oh, also, I mean, the other thing is, um, yesterday I went out. Uh, yesterday, because uh, 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 it was the weekend, I went to a children's zoo with some friends, and a friend of mine's a. She's an animator, like does um, uh, you know, computer animation on movies, and she said, "Well, what have you been up?" Because they've been really busy. Because basically, um, they can't they can't film big crowds of extras anymore. So she spent quite a lot of her time like putting crowds of extras into things and right sort of stuff. Right. And she said, oh, what have you been up to? And I said, oh, you know, we're doing this podcast. And she goes, oh, the battles, the blokes shooting each other. I'm just not interested in that, really. Oh, God, that, that bit just leaves me cold. And I said, well, actually, you know, we're into this idea of the uh, we've been having a lot of economists on number crunching. And then I told, got talking about some of the stuff we've talked about. And you could see her thinking, actually, the Second World War is interesting. Oh, brilliant. You've converted someone. <laughs> um, well, yeah, but mainly by talking about the mainly by talking about this um this new book, the John Ferris's book that um actually my dad, aka the Colonel, got me uh, into, yeah. which is um which is John Ferris is the official history historian of GCHQ. Mm. Not that he pulls any punches in this book. No, um, uh, it's amazing. Uh, uh, it's an amazing uh, book, Behind the Enigma, and it's about it's about the a century, the you know the although obviously not the more recent stuff. But the but the you know the the growth of um, uh, mainly out of the navy in the First World War of um, cryptanalysis, but SIGINT and comment and and all that sort of stuff. The development and then and then the what happens in between the wars, which is it basically they forget a great deal of the things they've learned in the First World War, and it becomes sort of siloed with different ex- areas of expertise and different people doing their own thing. And then the explosion in the Second World War of of Comments, SIGINT, decrypt, and the, and of course, I mean the, the the other thing he's really really good on is that that you've also got the fact that the um uh, uh, the Germans do very very well um uh, breaking um British codes and completely penetrate the navy uh, um in, in terms of codes and there aren't enough Type X machines which are secure to 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 put out there and there isn't enough stuff to you can't manufacture enough in time so the british basically accept the fact that they've been penetrated and the germans use SIGINT much much better in 1940 and in fact really until a kind of ultra and they and the and everything shaken down in british um uh cryptanalysis and 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 why and between and the y service and all that the three services. So the Y service is the listening service, isn't it? That's the one listening. where you're you're yeah, listening yeah, it, to other radio intelligence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or but, radio but, traffic. But, not... but of course, of course, he he's very good at saying, well, there's the tactical, there's the operational, and there's the strategic. I know, man, and how does uh, uh, and how, well, and then and then there's an awful lot about the bureaucratic um, end of this as well. Just just putting my hand up for my layer of warfare. But, yes. the, but there's really, 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 really just just the stuff is. It's just so interesting how, um, you know, and he says we sentimentalise Bletchley now. Yes, he's very strong on that, isn't he? And he's not having it. You know, it was a lousy place to work. Morale was really bad. Um, uh, Most of the people doing the sort of routine work didn't like it, knew that there were better billets and better jobs elsewhere. I mean... You know, and you've also got the clash between the sort of First World War <laughs> old guard and the 1920s and 1930s old guard, and then all these kids who were brought in, right? Uh, I, I mean, who were very mean, non-military and non-military don't really want to sing "God Save the King," you know, no stuff like that. This yeah. human picture of it, and it's it it it's just so interesting. And then of course, you've got you've got the fact that 
MI5 um, basically falls in on itself. MI6 sort of has a nervous breakdown. Menzies at MI6 decides that um, he's going to say the Ultra's from a spy called Boniface, mm. that it's not the... They won't, he won't say that it's ultra, that it's a code-breaking thing. And then, of course, you've got to create a cover story for Boniface. And then, of course, someone, you try, people try to pull the cover story apart. You have to maintain the cover story. And it actually is a way of leading, in the end, could be a way of leading the enemy to what you're doing, rather than just keeping it secret. So it's just amazing. The, whole, the tangle of it is, is absolutely amazing. And this thing, that because they realise that the... That, um, you know, the Navy's codes have been penetrated and they don't change it quick enough. A lot of what happens in Norway, the Germans know is coming because they've penetrated the Navy's codes. The RAF lose a load of code books in um, in France, you know, and and basically the Germans kind of know everything that's going on. But the Allies eventually realise, the British eventually go, right, well, OK, then we've got to be careful about what we transmit. But one thing we could do is use this to let the Germans, to, to, to lead the Germans by the nose to making bad decisions i mean he's very very interesting though because you know he says between the during the war at sea between 39 and 42 the germans gained as much from kipton analysis as the british did that it and the italians do well against eighth army as well as the germans against eighth army in kipton analysis i mean but well so I mean, the thing just, is, is sim isn't it um and it's um yeah. sim and it's and it's pretty effective it's it's almost yeah. the most effective part of the armed forces isn't it yeah yeah, they've got that down. Yeah. But I mean, just the scale of it is amazing. So um, GC and CS, you know, Government Code and Cypher School in 1938 gave its consumers and they're, and they're called consumers, you know, and and when they go at the code, it's called an attack and all the language is very interesting. In 1938, GC and CS gave its consumers 286 code books and tables in 19. So that's handing out code books and tables to people to use. It issued 78,000 in 1943. Blimey. So as an organisation, the sheer, you know, expansion. Yeah, yeah. And, and obviously you've then got people who who can't cope with that management change, the managers who can't cope with that pace of change. And why would you? Why would you be able to? You know, it's all quite understandable. I mean, it's but, just but, so, so he, he's, he's fascinating on fellows and, you know. But his basis thesis is up until 1942, our intelligence was a bit shit. And then afterwards it got a bit better, a whole lot better. Isn't that it? Isn't that basically what he's Yeah, it basically is. And he says, he says... Allied intelligence at its worst was as bad as anything the Germans did. When it was, its average was good, whereas the German average was mediocre. And the German German intelligence at its best was only okay, whereas Allied intelligence at its best was fantastic. Right. So he says, so that, you know, the, 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 that's the separation, <clears throat> that's the difference. But he also, you know, he says, he says the thing to remember, though, is, you know, when you're planning D-Day, you don't plan D-Day on the basis of the ultra- you plan no. D-Day with the Ultra. So you look at the Ultra and what does it tell you? And it you don't, you don't, you don't, you aren't going, oh, well, the Germans are looking in the other. You try and make the Germans look in the other direction. And a big part of the Ultra is is about knowing if the Germans are deceived as much as anything. You get their order of battle and that stuff. But what yep. it's about is knowing if they're deceived. And then it's why service that does tactical stuff rather than the strategic level that ultra tends to operate okay and, and how does that how does that kind of manifest itself in, in what way well so so that so what so what the strategic so, level, so why, why why is the wise well, tactical, tactical well tactical is strike right so so being no, knowing where a u-boat is 
and being able to hit it or knowing which you know and strategic the strategic bombing no, knowing knowing that and also knowing that the 12 ss are going to come up from wherever yeah. they're coming up on the yeah 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 yeah, yeah 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 that's Whereas your tactical that's your tactical. And, and and he particularly talks about strikes. So in the First World War, British intelligence and U-boats is much, much better, but they don't have the means to to, to act on it because they haven't got the aircraft, they haven't got the weapons. And then in the Second World War, the, the, the weapons eventually come online and they're able, they're able, and we've, we've talked about this a lot in the Atlantic, and they're eventually able using aircraft with those 20, those liberators that we talked about um, mm-hmm. oh no, we haven't that hasn't aired yet. But the you know the the, the liberators needed long range aircraft to 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 take on U boats. Then you can actually act tactically on that intelligence, right. strike intelligence, he calls right. it, and okay. that tends to be ta- that tends to be tactical. And then the strategic is you know which army's where, which direction is Hitler looking in, what's his priority, and it's very very interesting as well. You know he talks about how little how little Hitler. Um, uses this kind of intelligence. He sees the same kind of intelligence that that Churchill does, but what he doesn't do is nurture its productivity. He doesn't praise the people who are delivering it to him. He doesn't spend money and prioritise its delivery. So right. it declines in its quality, whereas the ally, the British in particular, totally prioritise um, uh, uh, this kind of intelligence. And you've got the Americans going, gee whiz, we can't believe how they do it. This is the, you know, they've got this, the British have got this thing and we, We've got to copy. We have to copy this because it's so good. I mean, the the other because the Germans don't go for this sort of brute force thing that the British do with the you know the bomber that's developed to crack enigma that comes from the Polish technology and, and Polish thinking. Yep. You know that they, 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 they don't that they haven't got enough, and they know they haven't got enough. And rather than rather than think, do we need another machine? Is there another way of doing this? They think, no, we'll just build two thousand bombers then, and we'll overwhelm the problem with kit. And application of kit, it's just so interesting. But he's wow. he's you know he says you know he says that the Germans the, the, the Germans in the strategic bombing campaign do very very well against the British because they're better at listening to the listening to the British, listening to what bomber command are doing. They figure out how the raids work, and he he calls that he he says the Germans you know in that respect with their SIGINT against the strategic the British component of the strategic bombing offensive win basically. They inflict such losses because H2S is seen as too secret and and the, and the a bomber command can't entertain the idea that the Germans are homing in on the H2S um, tactically, you know, because they've got those night fighters. So is the, he the, saying that's why they're, you know, that's why um, bomber command's losses are so horrific? Yeah. Yeah. And he says, given that given that the strategic bombing campaign is a central strike component of British strategy, the Germans, the Germans majorly disrupt it and and win in SIGINT terms. Certainly, in, uh, certainly until the end of 1944, when obviously, you know, it then flips yeah. and 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 we we've talked before about the strategic bombing pa- campaign goes into that tipping point. But surely that, but but, a, but 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 surely that's only you know it's it's from it's from the kind of autumn of 1943 that 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 the problems arise because that's when they overhaul the Germans overhaul their air defense system. Yeah, exactly. Yes, because up but, until that point they haven't really yeah, got one. Yeah. Well, what they have got is well, yeah, exactly, has grown so exactly. organically it's ineffective. Exactly, but they go, hang on a minute. That you know, we can use elect, we can we can use the elect SIGINT that the because the, after all the British are flying over Germany, transmitting all this electro, uh, you know, all yeah, this, yeah. Uh, uh, all these ele- with all these electronics, and 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 he 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 says, you know, that the Germans are really really good at that, and and the Allies are very often there. 
sig- uh, Signal's intelli- um, security is pretty slack. They're pretty all over the place, and certainly on a tactical level. <clears throat> and they and they gradually tighten they gradually tighten up as the war goes, but 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 don't really ever quite get there. I mean, uh, I mean the other thing that's it, really interesting is is that the only reason why in the autumn of 1943 they completely overhaul their air defence system is because of Hamburg. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. that rather than the bombing of the Ruhr in the spring yeah. that, that yeah. really prompts this. It's a total shock and horror it, of what happens it, to their second city that that, yeah. that makes them go, crikey, we really need to completely overhaul this and people get sacked and you know the whole thing gets... gets the, an entirely different air defence system is imposed. Yeah. Intelligence for strategic air, air def- offensives was harder to gather and successful in only one case. Anglo-American air forces integrated all forms of intelligence, especially imagery and ultra, into command and bomb damage assessment. By monitoring the impact of raids, the campaign and the enemy's economy, intelligence boosted the effect and efficiency of complex operations and the destruction of German forces and resources, moving the ratio of costs in strategic air warfare towards the attacker's favour during 44-45, which is what we've just been saying. Given the huge resources which the Western allies allocated to, to, to strategic air warfare, intelligence on it affected the war as much as that for Anglo-American armies. In technical terms, British intelligence was slightly better than German in that area. Yet strategic air defence was the greatest success for German intelligence against Britain and in the latter central offensive effort because power tilted so heavily against the attacker that intelligence could not only redress the, could not redress the balance, only force in this one German success in intelligence, counted Allied triumphs in many other fields. So he's saying, you know, that 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 this works so well for the Germans. I mean, it's just, it's. I mean, it's such an interesting book, and he's really, and it's in very plain languages, which I think is really yes. very, very, very interesting. He'll say, you know, command was good, intelligence was bad. He'll say it like that in a like completely sort of. There's quite a lot of sentences, because I'm, I'm, I'm behind the game on this one. I've started it, but yeah. I'm, I'm not as far through it as you are. But there's quite a lot of things where, where I have to read them about three times before I understand what he's talking about. Yeah, yeah, there's a bit of that, yeah. But, it, you know... And there's quite a lot yeah. of acronyms, and he doesn't have a glossary. And I'm thinking... Yes, oh, God, well, I had to... I, I kept, what? I kept, you know, what, what's PUS, jumping, for example? Well, because I've been jumping about, and there's one which is a, like a, you know, which is a, a CS13, and I think, well, I don't know what that is. Like. Yeah. Right? But, I mean, but he said, you know, he's just on the nose as this. Ble- yet, Bletchley did not save Britain, though it did help defeat Germany. He's saying, anyone who tells you Bletchley saved Britain is, you know, he says he's that's wrong. not the case. It helped defeat Germany. It was. It wasn't a... You know, it was a, 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 a an active rather than a passive thing. It's it's such an interesting, such an interesting um, book, and especially if especially if because I know a lot of our listeners know this that it's not just Alan Turing. It's not just it's mm. and it's not the the imitation game. It's none of that. I mean, interestingly, Turing's nephew or something. I think he's his nephew. He's in the Times today saying my uncle was not a tragic loner who wasn't collaborative and didn't work in a team and all this sort of thing he was actually he was a convivial guy and you know really good they bloke. liked sitting around yeah exactly i mean because after like all, one of having things, a few drink and smoking facts well well one of the really interesting things is that is that there are these within within bletchley there's this t- these two schools of thought where there's the cambridge dons who sit around discussing what an interesting problem is and how do you solve it and then the old the old the old cipher guy's going, could we just get on with attacking the code, please? And the Dons are going, and the Dons are going, that's exactly what we're doing, old chap. And he's going, 
why aren't you looking at the why aren't you why aren't you getting on with it right and then you know the, the sort of men of action and the men of the mind and all that yeah very, yeah very yeah fascinating. It, fascinating anyway we it was also very a... interesting about just very quickly it was also very interesting yeah. the bit that i have read about um why there was just never ever going to be a deal with russia in uh, with the soviet union in the summer of 1939 because just absolute pathological hatred of communism hold that thought we'll come back after the break and tell us more about it Welcome back to We Have Ways of Making You Talk with me, Al Murray and James Holland. And we've both been reading the same book. I've got a little more ahead. The stuff about Russia is amazing, isn't it? It's just yeah. thing, there is, it's, it's, it's communism, isn't it? It's communism. And it goes back to that kind of period immediately after the war where there's a moment where we're almost going to war with uh, with what becomes, what is the Soviet Union? Yeah. 1919, 1920, that kind of time. And um, yeah, you know, it's just, just particularly amongst the Tories as well. There is this yeah. such a deep-seated hatred of communism, mistrust of communism. Yeah. And the, the, the idea that you would do a deal with your enemy's enemy or potential enemy's enemy is just unpalatable in the 1930s. Yeah. And it's just not going to happen. Well, and uh, but the thing is, is that's, that's explicit in, in British party politics because, after all, the Labour Party has to do a big thing. Its constitution says, you know, we're not into insurrection, we're into democratic means, where we want nothing to do with the Soviets and all that. And things like the Zinoviev telegram, the mm. Zinoviev letter and all that, are enough to ruin Labour's, or, or enough to damage, I mean, after all, there's a lot of argument, uh, but the, uh, are, enough to, are enough to inflict electoral damage or besmirch Labour because the fear of communism is huge and yes. very, very, very real. Yeah. Um, uh, politically, it's alive. It's completely live. And after all, that that is fear of Bolshevism is one of the things that drives people to the Nazis. Um, of course. In, in Germany, you know, yeah. uh, as we've talked yeah, about yeah, before. Yeah. Anyway, absolutely. A few bits of parish news. Um, <laughs> uh, Twenty five minutes. In. We didn't do Jesus. any. Um, uh, yeah, we've done our usual thing. Um, uh, by the way, um, welcome back. Um, we, we have a quick <laughs> reminder that we, we do three of these podcasts a week these days, and there's a fairly standard format to them. Tuesdays is me and James talking all things Second World War, just like you've just been listening to, and trying to answer your questions, maybe, if we have time. Thursdays is a guest day where we're joined by someone interesting about a, a specific uh, subject. Maybe they've written a book about it, or maybe there's someone like Steve Ballinger, who we spoke to last week, who spent a decade, 10 years on the Tiley Island of Peleliu, clearing Second World War ordnance. Um, you know, hand grenades on people's desks as paperweights, that sort of thing. Then Sunday is our Family Stories episode in which we read out the stories of our listeners' parents and grandparents' experiences in the war. The stuff from your families, um, the th stuff that one day your great uncle s suddenly poked you in the chest at Sunday lunch and went, actually, you don't know what it was like on the Burma Railway, that sort of thing, which yeah. was literally one of the stories we had last weekend. And for the truly afflicted, we do a live version of the podcast every Thursday night at 8.30pm, which is a lot of fun, and basically like being in a pub with 750 other obsessives and no one trying to change the subject. Right. Um, we've some emails which we ought to read because we did get we did get major, majorly sidetracked by um, uh, John Ferris's book there. Um, OK, this is from Gemma Date. Um, Hi, James and Al. Love the pod and being an independent company member. That's what we call our Patreon members, by the way, and for uh, a reason shrouded in uh time and mystery My yeah question... the only problem is is that it started off because we we never thought we have more than about 120 people yeah and now there's a couple of thousand of them so i mean 
you know, it's a regiment. I think we're a regiment, really. Independent now. regiment. Yeah. Yeah, and then, and they they they're, they're loyalties to the regiment, whatever particular detachment they're in. Okay. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. my question stems from a family's med- family member's war experience. My great uncle Norman was in the army in North Africa and was captured by the Italians and taken back to Italy, where he was in a camp near Naples. When Italy did its U-turn, Norman and his fellow prisoners woke one morning to find all the Italian guards missing and the gates open. He and his mate decided to make a run for it before the Germans turned up and they were able to avoid them and then had quite the saga getting to Allied lines without being caught. My question is, has anyone ever compiled the stats of how many POWs escaped and made it all the way home? How lucky was Norman to achieve this feat? There is a manuscript of his escape somewhere in the family that I've read. It's quite amazing. Some of his actions he had to do to ensure his escape, I know, haunted him for his life. Thanks for organising Warfest on my 40th birthday weekend, trying to work out how to ditch the kids and husband and maybe join the fun. Many thanks. <laughs> Gemma Date. No, bring, bring the family. It's a family. It's a family friendly event. Um, many thanks, Gemma Date. Well, yes, it's POWs in Italy. Um, yeah, well, it's, I mean, it, it's known as the greatest escape, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, yeah. because yeah, I think yeah. it was something like 60,000, I think, wasn't it? 60,000 yeah. people escaping. Yeah. I mean, you know, yes, he was... Just, he was... You know, well, Go on. Because if you know about Richard O'Connor, you think, oh, that sounds unusual. But actually... It's everybody, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It, it's not it's, the odd individual. Um, so, every, so, so you know, w- w- what happened was once the armistice was was um, announced on the eighth of September, basically the, the, the camp guards just left. So suddenly they kind of yeah. woke up and and there was no one there, and so they yeah. all started. Some of them just waited for something to happen. Others thought, sod this for a laugh, you know, and just started moving. Um, yeah. It all depended on where you were. So um, Gemma's uncle um, Norman with in Naples, obviously, that's quite a long way south. Yeah. Um, you know, that's that's not far from Salerno. So he didn't have very far to go. So yeah, it, it made, geographically, that made it an awful lot easier for him to kind of reach Allied lines, I would I would suggest. Um, yep. You know, still plenty of um, difficulties to face and, and problems because you are still in Naples behind enemy lines. So, you you know, it's not easy, but it's a hell of a lot easier than if you're kind of, you know, near Bologna. Um, which is sort of up in the Apennines, and it's quite a long way to go to Switzerland, and it's a hell of a long way to go to get to Allied lines. Yeah, you know, and, and also, uh, it's very difficult. And, and, and in the intervening time, because after all, uh, uh, if you're in Naples when when Salerno happens, you know, and the Italians are changing sides, it's mu- it's a much more fluid situation, isn't it? But yeah. if you're in Bologna, the, the, the intervening time to get south, the Germans have hardened everything up, and it's yep. just that much more difficult to. To saunter through, you know. Although one of the things that is interesting about the Second World War is, is that the idea of lines doesn't doesn't always stand up. There's that great story about when um, Churchill goes to see Monty in his TAC HQ in um, Normandy. And Monty basically explains to him, well, the Germans are here and we're there, but there is no con- continuous, contiguous line. No. Um, uh, you know, there are no. people blocking bits of geography and then there are other bits that are completely empty. And, and yeah yeah exactly so so it is possible but but it's usually but but in Italy it's only possible by kind of yomping through mountains and yeah, don't yeah. forget you've been a prisoner so you haven't got many supplies no one in in Italy's got going to give you a map I mean no you know I mean that's a miracle if you do that so you have no real idea where you are so just navigating around using the sun and, and a basic compass if you're yeah. lucky is it's incredibly difficult. And you're dependent on, on the good nature of Italians who were, you know, your enemy and now many cases your friend. But, I mean, you don't know who's fascist and who isn't. And, yep. 
you know, lots of mistrust going on. It's very difficult. I mean, an awful lot of them ended up well, also, work for operating with partisan bands. I mean, the Stella Rossi, who I've talked about a lot, you know, this our partisan band just in the um, in the Montessori massive sort of south of Bologna. They had they had Jock and they had Steve, who was a South African. Um, uh, they had you know three or four British POWs and you know Commonwealth POWs in their number. Yeah, yeah. But then again, there's different people too, aren't there? Because I mean, I think one of the interesting things. Um, Guy, Guy Walters in his Great Escape talk. One of the thing, points he re, he likes to make is, you know, not everyone was not everyone was for escaping, and so you know those guys who go join the Stella Rossi, that's because they're up for a scrap, isn't it? Whereas there's plenty of other people who think. Oh, well, it's also because much. they're just stuck in Italy, and there's there's no yeah, but, realistic but, way of getting out. Yeah, but but it's also but you could you could turn yourself in to be a POW. You, you know what I mean? It's, yeah, it, yeah, yeah. It, it, it could be you're not up for fighting because I mean I think that the, 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 I think the point Guy makes in that in his Great Escape talk is that all these people have been in plane crashes. <laughs> they've all had they've all suffered incredibly incredible yeah. potentially incredibly yeah. traumatic event. Lost people. You know they might think oh, I've done my bit. I'll sit. Thanks very much. I'll sit it I'll out. Sit tight. I mean. I mean, Gemma's, Gemma, your uncle and his mate, um, your uncle, great uncle Norman and his mate, must have been incredibly resourceful, though. Because mm. then the other thing is, you, you're right, you're absolutely right. You're, you're, it, it's not only who's a fascist, you're foreign. You can't, you can't hide so that. So they might, they might, exactly, they might think you're German if they, they can't understand what you're saying. You know, uh, uh, they don't know who you are. Yeah. Um, uh, and you can claim to be English or you like, but they might not, they might, you know, especially, I mean, you've talked about, the really like rural peasant communities in 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 southern yeah. Italy. No, it's, 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 really it's, it's at least fifty percent illiteracy, if not higher. Yeah, yeah. And in, in yeah. and and that's across the entire nation. So in rural yeah. communities, it's even yeah, it's even higher that percentage. I, I, I mean, mean, it'd be amazing, Gemma, if you found a, a, this manuscript manuscript of his escape. It would be absolutely fascinating to hear that. Yeah, uh, wouldn't it? I wonder but, if Gemma but, can but, um, can dig it out and. Send us a copy. Yeah. I'd love to read it. Because it's such a, it's such an interesting story. And and it and it is a lot of blokes, isn't it? It's an awful lot of people. Um, yeah. That, that's, the, that's the thing. Yeah, um, I mean, you know, a, a, a lot did escape and a lot did get back to Allied lines. There's no question. And, and also, you yeah. know, what's your time frame on this? I mean, yeah. you know, because the number of people that got back to Allied lines within sort of a few days, obviously very small. But some were still doing it. You know, they, they, you know, because also another a lot of people stayed with their partisan bands because they thought, well, the Allies will be here soon, you know, and yeah, then, yeah, then yeah, I'll yeah. just rejoin them, you know, and I'll, I'll sit yeah, tight yeah. until they till they sweep up the leg. And of course, as we all know, with Italy, it all took a little bit longer than everyone was initially expecting. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for yeah, numerous start, reasons, you know. Yeah, start, but it's start fascinating. The, what a fascinating thing. <laughs> yeah, but you know, you're effectively an outlaw, and being an outlaw is, uh, you know, being being someone with 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 no identification, no rights. Yep. You, you know that makes it's very very difficult to survive really really yeah. difficult you know ask robin yeah. hood i mean he had a terrible time with it <laughs> but, but even harder i mean it's all right for him he was in sherwood forest wasn't he but i mean you know you know at least they all spoke the same lingo but i mean not in not in italy i think really really tough um and also don't forget the other thing is is that these great escapes happening in september you know sitting out the winter whew, that was that's tough and I don't need yeah. to say it again. Those winters were tough in the Second World War. I mean, they're very, very tough winters in the Second World War, James. <laughs> I've not I mentioned mean, that before. A... <laughs> but what very the... brutal in Italy. I mean, you know, it, 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 you, I suppose what I'm trying to say is you cannot, you cannot overstate just how difficult it was to survive on the run. 
you know, right. and that's why a comparatively small number actually made it successfully. Eric Newby, ah. he wrote about this, didn't he? In Love and War and the Apennines. Yeah, I mean, it, you know, I you you you've you've got to you've got to take your hat off to anyone prepared to prepared to live on the land like that and try and get back. I mean, it, it's just also yeah, also bloody difficult. I'm just trying to find what was that operation where the um. They sent some. They sent some guys to blow up an Italian viaduct, Colossus Operation Colossus, February 1941. Eight Whitleys, um, uh, bearing X Troop from Number 11 SAS Battalion, flew into Malta for the completion of their 1,400 mile journey from Mildenhall, and they went for the Tragino Aqueduct raid. Right. Where they they basically they parachuted in, um, uh, landed at um, landed at this this viaduct, tried to blow it up. I mean. It, and then, and then, of course, it's that thing of oh, now we're in, um, now we're in Italy. <laughs> what do we do now? Now where do we go? <laughs> exactly. And I think they were meant to be picked up by a, by a submarine. I can't remember. Um, it, it, it just, it just sprung into my head because that thing of and that it thing quite of work. trying to. Of course not. Um, uh, <laughs> <laughs> they did display. They did. They did destroy the Tragino Aqueduct. They did blow it up. Okay, so mission um, accomplished. Um, and you know negligible effect on the Italian war effort but it did create a serious interruption to the water supplies of Taranto and other ports um, uh, it's a it's a it's an interesting one but they walk, they all they all basically tried to walk home to get to a submarine the idea was they'd, they'd land attack the the, the the aqueduct and then walk 50 miles to the coast to the mouth of the Sele River where HMS Triumph would pick them up yeah, that that does sound like it's a long shot, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. And but at least course, they would have had at least they'd have had maps and compasses and kit and ammo and stuff. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, if you're a POW, you've the, got you've got diddly squat, haven't you? Yeah, I can't remember the whole st- the whole story though. But that's like the, that's the first parachute operation of the war. That's pre biting. That's before the Bruneval raid. Um, wow. uh, yeah, 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 yeah. And you know, I mean, honestly, God, um, that's not hit my radar at all. Do you not know about that? No. Or if I did, I've completely forgotten about it. Um, they went through They went through. Sounds Malta. fascinating. Amazing. Yeah. Well, what do you know? Yeah, the six men who didn't make it to the... Who'd not landed in the drop zone were the sappers who were supposed to rig the aqueduct for demolition. Oh! No! Oh. Oh. Not again! Not again! Um, but they, they, they... Yeah. And then they... And then they... They got... They were captured and all this sort of stuff. Um... But I don't think that... I, God, I can't remember what the casualties were. One killed in action, one wounded, 35 POWs. Yeah. And that's that's when it was that's when it was called the SAS before they called it the Parachute Regiment. So it's, it's pre-parachute birth of the Parachute Regiment. It's a, it's, yeah, I'm surprised you don't know about that. That's, a, that's, that's like a proper little, like, um, yeah, you know, about uh, we can achieve anything, They, but it doesn't quite work out that way. Anyway, that, let's, let's... That would uh, make a good little book, wouldn't it? It would. It would make a good little book, James. Yes. Um, uh, this one is from Tom White. Another email, gentlemen. Absolutely loving this. Have to be our last one then, because we got we got someone else on in a minute. Um, we 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 record some of these in chunks sometimes, and we've got an interview to do in a bit. Um, gentlemen, absolutely loving the podcast. I'm a regular listener, though. The Elder Holland's History Pod is good for filling in the time while I wait for your next 
episode to be released. Um, good. That's good to hear that he's, uh, he's the B feature. Having listened to your episode on Veritable <laughs> and having just finished reading John Buckley's Monty's Men, I've become fascinated by the idea of infiltrating enemy lines and forward recce elements. In Normandy, the story of an advanced recce honey Stuart light tanks finding unmanned and undestroyed bridges and holding them before calling up the main forces seems fascinating. Imagine oh, yeah. the exhilaration and fear of being in open country behind enemy lines. Were these troops considered elite? It, it seems that they must have been extremely capable to do what they to, must have been highly dangerous work. Were they volunteers? Did they have specialised training? Bearing in mind they were presumably not accompanied by infantry. Thanks for keeping me going through lockdown. Superb work. I'm looking forward to Warstock. Cheers, Tom in North London. Hmm. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, reconnaissance troops are, they're kind of at every, every level of ground forces. So you yeah. would have, um, so there is the, the reconnaissance corps, which provides yeah. recce regiments for infantry divisions. Yeah. Uh, and typically they would be, they would have kind of honey stroke Stuart tanks and they would have half tracks and yeah. Daimlers and staghounds and that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, You'd also armored divisions also have an armored reconnaissance regiment, but they tended to be equipped mostly with with Stuarts and also Cromwells, and yep. generally speaking, were were used as just an extra load of armor. Yeah, because very often your leading division, armored division, would also have corps troops attached, and one yep, of the yep. key corps troops was the armored car regiment. Yeah. Which is the kind of eyes and ears for the corps commander, the corps headquarters. So they would be doing that role rather than the armoured recce unit yeah. in the armoured yeah. division, if you see what I mean. So I think the thing you're, I think the, the bit that Tom's talking about is that amazingly when they uh, it's Operation Blue Coat and they have a there's two yeah. thrusts, there's a, there's the left hand thrust and there's the right hand thrust, and the right hand thrust just burns on ahead in these armoured cars and yeah. gets this bridge and finds it's it's, it's completely. It's still there. The Germans haven't blown it, so they hold it. And and the the point about it is, reconnaissance troops is you know what you need is you need you need that you need speed and mobility and the ability to cross country. Um, you know that comes with lightness. You're not going to be doing that in a big, great, big, heavy, heavy hulking tank for the most part, which right. is why they have these Stuart tanks. So you've got some armor, you've got some means of defending yourself, but the point is not to get in a scrap. I mean that's yeah, yeah, that's whole, that's half the point. Yeah. Um. They don't have specialist training, no. They, you know, they're you know, you you, you join, you know, you they're join the entirely... reconnaissance corps. You get trained just like anyone else. You know, like you would yeah. if you were in the Royal Armour Corps. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're not I mean, considered that... elite, I don't think at all. No, 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 no. But yeah, it would have been exhilarating. Would have been just unlucky. <laughs> well, I don't know. I kind of, I, I'm kind of with them. I think it would have been exhilarating, but also, yeah, really scary stuff because of all those mines yeah. and everything and people yeah. jumping out of you with Panzerfaust. Well, and you're basically going forward to find out where the trouble starts aren't you yeah so yeah which suggests risk. at some point you're going to hit that trouble yeah, yeah it's a highly risky job anyway we are out of time i'm going to send you a link about operation colossus now if you don't know yeah, thank you. you didn't interesting you didn't know about that. that's fascinating um um uh yeah we will see you next time we're back thursday morning with jens vayner a german historian and creator from dresden and that was a, an amazing chat oh yes um, if only for the like historiographical perspectives mm. that, uh, yet again blow your tiny mind we'll see you on thursday night for the live show as well auf wiedersehen cheerio